morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Matt, part of the team here at Westside. Along with Kelsey, Casey, I want to welcome you. Kelsey, that would be weird if his name was Kelsey. It's not, it's Casey. And along with him, I want to welcome you too, especially if you're just coming in off the street or whatever. Long time Westside, West it's great to have you here. Uh, we've been away, I've been away for the last three or four weeks. Uh, had been out of town for a bit, had the privilege to serve some other ministries. And I, I missed you guys like crazy. Uh, I, just, I just found myself longing for this. Uh, extended family's great. Grandpas, grandmas, aunts, uncles, cousins, all that stuff. Jesus has one church. We're one family, but this is immediate family. So I'm really, really grateful and full of joy to be back. It's, it's a God's grace in our lives. We can be a part of this ministry with you. So happy to be here with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, turn to the book of Philemon, New Testament, probably a single page in your Bible. So if the pages are sticky, you might miss it. Uh, directly to the left of the book of Hebrews. If you were here last week, you'll know that this summer we're spending, uh, we're, we're spending the next few weeks going through four New Testament one-chapter books. We're spending two weeks on each one. Last week we started with the first half, almost half, of Philemon. This week we're finishing it off. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Philemon 8 to 25 for us. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right into it. So if you have your Bible or your app or whatever, Philemon uh, verses 8 to 25. Let me read this for us. Paul writes this. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is re required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, and, am, and an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self." Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I want to thank you, Lord. It's with joy that we come before you this morning. It's with joy that we open your word and read from it, God. And, and it's with great expectancy, Lord, that we just ask you to, to, by the power of your spirit, to move and to change us. Lord, we just pray this morning that, that you would just, you just interrupt, God, whatever's going on in our minds, in our lives already. We all bring a lot of stuff in here with us, God, but we just pray that you will interrupt that, 
that you'll get a hold of us, God, that you'll, you'll move us more into the likeness of Christ. I pray, Father, for those here who don't yet know you. I pray that today they would see, they would see you for the first time. They would understand the power of the cross and they would come to know you. And I pray also, Lord, for those here, my brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, would you just grow us? God, transform us, change us, equip us, convict us, strengthen us, break us. We love you, Lord. We desperately need you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I love, I love the book of Philemon. I love this letter that Paul wrote to this guy called Philemon. Last week, if you were here, Norm unpacked uh, much of the context around this little letter that was written to Philemon by Paul while he was imprisoned. He did that because some of what's here in the book of Philemon for us is a bit tricky for us to navigate our way through. It's tricky for us because the whole premise that underlies the book of Philemon is that we have a letter being written to a Christian slave owner on behalf of a slave. This is tricky for us. So last week we looked at how Christians should understand slavery in the Bible and whether or not the Bible in the way it speaks about slavery is actually condoning it. Here's a hint, it's not. But if you want more context on that, I would just commend last week's sermon to you. I'm not going to double up on what we've said last week. It was a great sermon. Uh, so I would just encourage you to go there and listen to it. So we're dropping right into the middle of a story this morning. We have a few characters. We have Philemon. The master, slave owner, Christian. We have Onesimus, the slave, who's also a brand new Christian. Then we have Paul, the apostle. So how does this all fit together? Well, the story goes like this. See, sometime prior to Onesimus' meeting Paul, he'd actually run away from his master, Philemon. Not only that, but it also appears that based on what's said in this letter that Onesimus stole from Philemon on his way out the door, which was actually really common in those days. When a slave would run away, very common for that slave to help himself to some of his master's money or just to aid him on his journey. I mean, he needed help. So that's what he was doing. Now, now we have to understand, this wasn't the same as, you know, Onesimus quitting his job without any notice. Right? This wasn't just like Onesimus didn't give two weeks. This was a very different time, a very different relationship. The penalty for what Onesimus has done, death. His life at this point is worth little or nothing. The probable theft was just adding insult to injury. Now the plot in our story thickens. It thickens because we find out that after Onesimus ran away from Philemon, he actually came in contact with Paul. While Paul was in prison, he heard the gospel and he came to Jesus. That's a big deal, right? So Onesimus' whole life now has been transformed. In verse 11, we read of Paul telling Philemon that formerly he, Onesimus, was useless, but now he is indeed useful. Onesimus came to Jesus and his whole life changed. Everything changed. The kind of person he was changed. He became extremely valuable to Paul while he was in chains. Which is what Paul tells us in verse 13. But there's a problem. There's an issue. What's the issue? Well, the issue is that Onesimus has some really serious unresolved sin in his past. He broke the law. He wronged his master. And Paul knows that this situation needs to be reconciled. So that's what Paul's doing. 
He's at work doing exactly that. He's sending Onesimus back to his master, even though it pains him personally. In verse 12, he tells us that it's like he's sending his own heart away from him. Right? This is pain for Paul, but as he does, he wants to make sure that Philemon responds appropriately in light of his own faith and the newfound slave or newfound faith of his slave, which is the purpose of the letter in front of us this morning. Now, like I said, I love this letter. I really love this letter. And the reason why, one of the reasons anyways, is because what we have here is a complete reorientation of worldviews because of the gospel. We have these two guys, and a way bigger context, but these two guys who their worlds are really being flipped on their heads. They're being turned upside down. This useless man has become the opposite, and he's about to return to the last place in the world that he ever thought he'd go back to. I mean, that's what the gospel does, right? I mean, some of us in this room can relate to that. Just going to the last place you ever thought you'd go. Right? God's prompting Onesimus in that way. At the same time, Philemon is being petitioned to live and act in ways that are completely contrary to his own culture and, and the wisdom of his day. Why? Again, because of the grace of God revealed to him in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because of the gospel. Paul's reminding Philemon and us that coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus is way more than just a shift in what we believe. Coming to Jesus changes our actual lives. It changes what we do. It changes the way we see our world. For us living in Vancouver, it changes the way we understand and perceive our city. It changes everything. This letter is all about that. This letter is about people's lives being transformed by the gospel. So that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at really two ways that ha that happens. Two major ways that we see these lives being transformed by the gospel in the letter to Philemon. Okay, so two ways. If you're taking notes, let me give them both to you right now. The first way that we see the gospel of God changing lives is one, it frees us to love. And two, compels us to die. Frees us to love and compels us to die. I want to look at both of those really briefly this morning. I want to look at how they work together. And I want to look at what the end result of them is. And I just don't think there's any way we could overstate the importance of this letter for our world, for our city, and for our lives today. 2014 in Vancouver. So let's jump right into this. Let's jump into Paul's request of Philemon. Please have a look at it. I'm always deeply encouraged when I see you looking down, uh, reading the Bible with me, so please do that. Uh, in Philemon 8, 8 to 9, the first half of 9, Paul writes this. He says, Accordingly, Philemon, though I am bold enough, in we know Paul is bold. He doesn't even have to really say that. He's a bold guy, but he says it anyways. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Now what's interesting about this is how Paul, for no apparent reason, points Philemon to the law here, the law of God, and then immediately points beyond it to something greater. He's essentially saying, okay, Phil, look. It would be very easy. It would be easy for me to tell you all about the law of God that's binding on you in this situation because, by the way, it is. You're required. Something's required of you. It would be easy for me to make the case that the law of our culture has no bearing between you and Onesimus. 
But Philemon, it's not necessary for me to hold your feet to the fire because you've been liberated by the law, from the law, by something way more compelling, grace. Now this is a frustrating, it frustrates me when I read that. I think it frustrates me because I, I remember when I was young, uh, younger, and, my, and growing up my dad would do this thing that would really, uh, it would really upset me. So I, I, would, I would have a situation where I wanted something, like I really wanted something, I'm very passionate about this, I don't remember what it was, but this happened regularly, I wanted something. My dad would say to me, okay, Matt, here you go. I'm going to give you a choice. You're free to choose whatever you want, but here's the deal. If you make the right choice, I'll let you make more choices. That was ultimately frustrating to me when I was a kid because what he's saying is you have a choice, but really there's only one choice. I'm forcing you to choose what I want you to do. So frustrating. And that's what it sounds like Paul's doing, right? Just Philemon, I could tell you what you have to do, but, but I don't want to, I'd rather appeal to you for the sake of love. Why is Paul doing this? Well, because Paul knows what's required of Philemon, but he also knows that there's something much greater than requirement in the lives of believers. See, Paul knows that God's grace frees us. We're free in Jesus. If you're here and you're in Jesus, you're free. You're free from the grip of sin. You're free from the law of diminishing returns that this world offers you at every point and you're instead free to live in such a way that joy and life will be multiplied as you walk out the law of God. But here's the thing. In Jesus, we aren't just free for the sake of being free. No, we're freed by his grace so that we can live in light of his law willingly and without compulsion. That's why he's freed us. In Jesus, we're freed to something and we're freed for something. That's what Paul is getting at, which is why he points directly to the new law that we're bound to in verse 9 when he looks beyond compulsion and writes this, Philemon 9a, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. God's grace has freed us to love. Now let me remind you that this is not a minor point. That this is in fact a major theme throughout the New Testament. For example, when Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, and we read in Matthew 22, verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, great. We're free to love, which let's be honest, means basically nothing. Right? It means nothing. Yesterday, uh, Missy, my wife, Melissa, and I were walking downtown and um, she pointed a shirt out to me in a store window, which was very profound and very deep and really impacted me. And it said, Love is 
love. It's powerful. That's powerful stuff. Our world needs more of that. Because here's what we're saying. Nothing. It means nothing. Right? And that's often the way that we think about love. When we hear the word love, we think of nothingness. We think that's a great idea. We want to be all about love. Who knows what that means? Nobody. So let's get specific. Let's get specific then. What does love look like in the life of a Christian? The answer to that question is exactly what Paul's running after here. The outworking of love. See, the whole thrust, the whole thrust of this letter to Philemon really revolves around one thing. There's one thing going on here. One thing that Paul's intensely concerned that Onesimus and Philemon find. He's asking Philemon to free his slave, but Onesimus' freedom isn't the end game. He's asking Philemon to forgive, but that only gets us part way. He's ultimately asking Philemon to love, but love for a purpose. He's asking Philemon to let the radical love of Jesus guide him instead of a million other lesser things because Paul knows that the love of God flowing through Philemon will ultimately lead to one thing, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now let's be clear, this is no easy ask. This is not an easy ask. Philemon has been wronged. He's been wronged. He's been hurt. He's been robbed. He's been set aside, culturally humiliated, and pained. Philemon deserves justice. Now this wouldn't have only been a difficult proposition for Philemon. He's not the only one in this situation who would have struggled with the letter Paul was writing. Onesimus is also being asked to do the last thing in the world that he would ever have thought of doing. For this reason, New Testament scholar and theologian N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, the point at which he, Onesimus, meets Paul is the point not only of a gospel-generated worldview crisis, but also of the particular transformation of narrative. These are Onesimus' words. He says, I have tried to seek my freedom, but now I have to go back and face the possibility of being a slave for life. It is a heavy thing that Paul is asking of Onesimus, just as it is a heavy thing that he is asking of Philemon. See, the amazing thing about this request by Paul is the boldness with which he is turning away from the contemporary wisdom of their day and instead pointing these two men to a completely different way of seeing the world. I just love that. He's saying to Onesimus, look, oh, I don't know what he called him, probably not Onesimus. It's a real pain to keep saying that as I'm finding this morning. He says, look, oh, there's something... There's something much, much greater at stake here than your freedom. In fact, it's so much bigger than your freedom that you need to risk your freedom to run after it. He's saying to Philemon, look, there's something much greater at stake here than your own personal hardship and your own desire for justice. Westside, there's something bigger in our lives going on than just our lives. Your life is about something more than however many fleeting years you're given. We're but a vapor. We rise up, we're gone. We're like grass blowing away in the wind. Our lives are for much more than that brief moment in time. 
If you're in Jesus and like Onesimus, everything about you has changed and you're being called again this morning to put away the wisdom of the world and instead live out the implications of the law of love with its end of reconciliation. Now maybe like the word love, reconciliation doesn't seem much better. Maybe it seems a bit weak. I mean, what are we really saying? Okay, so God really wants us to all get along. Well, that, Matt, thanks for, thanks for everything you're doing, but that seems like a really kind of long and drawn out and roundabout way just to tell us God wants us all to get along. See, but it's way more than that. The world, the whole world is trying to accomplish that. The whole world's running after, okay, how do we get along? But we're being called to something much deeper, not much deeper, much more. We're not being asked merely to get along. What we're pointed to is something way more profound. How do we know? Well, please follow me here. We know because of the position, the position that Paul puts himself in this letter. Now, this is really important. I really want you to see this this morning. See, Paul isn't standing between Onesimus and Philemon and playing dad. That's not what he's primarily doing. He's not saying, okay, look, oh, say you're sorry. Phil, say I forgive you. That's not what's going on here primarily. No, he's standing between these two men as a living representation of the reality that's ours in Jesus. Paul is actually using his personal relationship and unity with both of these men in a deeply symbolic way. Let me show you what I mean. In verses 1, 5, and 7, you can read them if you like, Paul tells us that Philemon is his beloved fellow worker. The one whose faith, love, and ministry have encouraged him and brought him joy in prison. And that he has been comforted by Philemon's love. Paul says, look, Philemon, that's my relationship with you. That's the connection that you and I have. At the same time, in verses 10, 12, and 16, Paul tells us that Onesimus is his child. His own heart. His brother. He says, Onesimus, this is how you and I are connected. In essence, what Paul is saying is that the two of you are joined together in me. He's saying, look, I know that there's a huge discord between both of you right now, but you need to understand I'm bridging this gap for us. I'm pulling us all together. It's why in verse 17, Paul says to Philemon, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Literally, Paul is saying that when you see Onesimus, I want you to see me. Treat him the way you would treat me on arrival. It's why he's so bold as to say in verse 18 that if Onesimus owes you anything, charge that to my account. The debt that Onesimus owes is now mine. And just in case Philemon isn't getting the point, and it's like, great, Paul, I'm going to send you a bill. I'm writing it up right now. Just in case that that's happening in Philemon's mind, Paul's quick to add, of course, there's no need for me to remind you that you actually owe your very self to me. So the, the bill is really mute, right? I mean, let's not do that. Again, it's Paul at his best. But the symbolism here. The symbolism here is thick. It's thick, it's rich, it's deep, and it's one of the reasons this letter is so 
profound because it reminds us that the source of all that we are, the source of all that we have, the source of all that you and I are called to is found in the cross of Christ. Jesus, Jesus has stood in for each one of us. Jesus has absorbed our debts. Jesus has said to the Father, if they owe you anything, charge that to me. And because of the cross, we as brothers and sisters stand before God. And just like Philemon was asked, the Father looks at us and he doesn't see our transgressions and our sin against him. No, what does he see? The perfect, spotless righteousness of his own son. And Jesus did this for one reason. Jesus did this so that the world would be free to respond to God's love and be reconciled to him. See, reconciliation is the point of the gospel. Ever since human beings rebelled against God, there's only been one great and overarching need, and that's reconciliation. Without reconciliation to God, we are living only to die. But once reconciled, we find finally the life and the light that we're all searching for. There's nothing more important than this. And so Paul is saying that this has to be the thing that motivates us. This has to be the thing that drives us, the thing we live for. It's for that reason that Paul is completely unwilling to let either of these guys off the hook. See, there's no option given in the gospel for Christians to be at odds with one another. There's no option given. You and I, Brothers and sisters, we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And where discord exists between brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in very grave sin. And when we hear about families, Christian families, who no longer speak with one another, we are denying the gospel at one of the most core levels. And Paul is unwilling to let these guys do that. All right, so the first part then, the first part of the request being made of Philemon is that he let his response to Onesimus be motivated by the radical love of Jesus instead of the wisdom of the world. Now, let me appeal to you on a personal note for just a moment. As many of you will know, if you've ever been wronged, if you've ever been personally violated or hurt, this will not be easy. This will not be easy on the part of Philemon. I mean, this is otherworldly. This kind of unnatural reorientation to seeing the world is the reason why we hear about things like Christians, our brothers and sisters being persecuted, families destroyed, wives raped, children murdered, and then we hear about this. People turning around to forgive those who have violated them. That doesn't make any sense. This this kind of gospel response is why we hear stories of wives and husbands forgiving repentant spouses for breaking their marriage covenant. This is why children who've been neglected and abused for years can turn around and forgive their brokenhearted parents. This is the upside down kingdom of Jesus. This is what it looks like when people are truly free to love. Now, <coughs> excuse me, our world says that's not right. 
stand up for yourself, take what's yours. Undeserved forgiveness is not only not okay, but it undermines justice and we can't have a society that works that way. And the reason why our world responds that way is because it's never understood the beauty of our second point. The second thing that Paul is calling Philemon and us to this morning. See, Christians are not only freed to love, we're also, every single one of us, compelled to die. We need to understand Philemon was not simply being asked to be a little bit patient or a little bit forgiving, or even a little bit loving. No, he's being asked to die to himself and instead live to Jesus. Philemon's instinct would have been much like ours, would have been much like mine. He would have seen a debt owed, an injustice done, and a punishment required. But Paul's saying, hang on a second, brother. Hang on a second. Despite the fact that you've not been repaid, Despite the fact that you've not felt any resolution, the debt has been totally absorbed. Justice has been completely dealt and punishment no longer has any place in this situation. Listen, Onesimus has come to Jesus. Everything's been paid for. How can you require justice? when justice has been fully bought at the cross. Now the, now the question that plagued me personally as I was thinking about this is what would it actually take for Philemon to put away his anger, to put away his pain and respond rightly? Because here's what I can imagine doing. I mean, if I were Philemon, I could imagine doing this, okay? I've got Paul's letter. I'm frustrated. Just when I was, like, when I was a little kid with my dad, I'm going to do the right thing because I have to. So Onesimus shows up, I say, okay, Onesimus, listen. I forgive you. You're a free man. Now get out of my sight. I never want to see your face ever again. I can imagine doing that. And in the world's eyes, that's gracious. You gave him something he didn't deserve. You freed your slave. You've done the right thing. That's a generous man with a changed heart. But listen, that would have defined failure as far as Paul is concerned. He doesn't want Philemon to put up with having to forgive Onesimus. He wants Philemon to see Onesimus and for his heart to be full of love. He wants joy and embrace and life and unity. Let's be clear. What Paul is asking for is outrageous. It's outrageous. He wants the kind of recon re reconciliation that you and I have in Jesus. I mean, he wants the kind that made the father of the prodigal son abandon all his posture and his image and run to his son instead of letting him simply come back into the house. He wants the kind of reconciliation that, 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 may, that has let God give us the righteousness of his son instead of merely forgiving our sins. We've been lavished with grace and with his righteousness. Now we are heirs to the throne of Christ. We don't deserve any of that. He wants that kind of reconciliation. So let me wrap this whole thing up for us. 
by giving us two side points, two ways that we see in this letter that two things that Philemon, I think, is going to have to do. Two things that you and I are going to have to do, going to have to understand if we are going to be successful at freely loving one another and dying to self. Now, these are side points. They're not major themes in the letter, but I think they're still important. So the first thing, the first side point that will be necessary for us to die to self is this one. It's in verse 15. Please have a look at it. Philemon 15. Paul says to Philemon that this reconciliation, that the having back of Onesimus forever as a brother is perhaps why was perhaps why he was parted from you for a while in the first place. Now we need to get what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling Philemon that quite likely God has had a bigger purpose behind the transgressions against him. Paul is saying that the pain you've felt, Phil, may have actually been a result of the movement of God's own scalpel in your life. This is crazy because it just looks like sin. It just looks like evil. And Paul's saying there may be a purpose behind this that God is working out. Listen, Paul is daring to go where many of us are, are too fearful. Do you know? Do you know that the circumstances of your life, I mean every circumstance in your life is presided over by God? Do you know that he's perfectly in control? I mean, perfectly in control. Do you know that every ounce of pain that you have ever walked through, every moment of joy, every one of those has been run through the sieve of God's fingers before it ever got to you? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Because if you know that, then there's nothing that can make you afraid. There's nothing that can actually bind you if your confidence is in the fact that God is in control of all the good and all the bad that happens to you, then you will forever be looking for ways to take your pain and to take your joy and to use it as a means of reconciliation for the sake of Jesus and his glory. Because you recognize that that's all that it exists for anyways. That's the purpose behind it. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, Christians are free to die to self because Christians are free to frame every aspect of life, every circumstance, every trial, every bit of suffering, every blessing as coming from the hands of God. And as we begin to learn this, we begin to die to ourselves because we begin to live for something bigger than just what happens to us to just what happens to our bodies, to just what happens to our bank accounts, to just what happens to our families. We begin to see our lives as valuable only insofar as they make Jesus known to the world around us. This is what understanding God's sovereignty accomplishes in our hearts. Listen, this is what it means to believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In order to say that, in order to put that on your Facebook wall or on your little Instagram profile thing, you have to have a solid, a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. And this is the amazing thing about the call to see people through the lens of the gospel. 
instead of through the lens of our own lives. We're not called to love and die for others because there's something lovable in them or worthwhile in them. No, we're called to love others and die to self because of who God is, what God has done, and what God is continuing to do according to his own good pleasure. Now, the second thing that will be required of Philemon and us if we're to die to self is to understand that we're slaves of God. We looked at it last week, as I said, but the whole idea of slavery underlies this letter. I'm of the mind personally, as many others are, uh, that Paul's writing to Philemon was really, he was asking Philemon to free Onesimus, though we're not explicitly told that. You kind of read it between the lines, but it seems like that what Paul's asking. But regardless, it's no mistake that the master-slave relationship is in view here. Because in order for Philemon to undergo the kind of radical transformation of heart and mind that's being asked from him, this slave owner, this master will have to recognize, will have to realize that he is in reality very much a slave. When Jesus hung in Philemon's place, absorbing his debt, paying for his transgressions and becoming his sin, Philemon's life transferred ownership. Philemon, every one of Philemon's moments, every one of Philemon's dollars, every one of Philemon's friends, loved ones, they no longer belonged to Philemon. They belonged to Jesus and Philemon became a slave and a steward. And if you're in Jesus, then the same is true for you. It's why in 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price. And it's why in 1 Peter, we're told exactly what that price was, the precious blood of Christ. Pure, spotless, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are not our own masters. Brothers and sisters, hear me. We are not our own masters. Our lives do not belong to us. And our master, King Jesus, he's given us a command. Freely love those around you. Die to yourself. Why? For the sake of bringing the reconciliation found only through me to a world that's dying without it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, for the conviction of my own heart that I'm experiencing right now, God, as you're just revealing my own idols to me. Lord, I thank you for the joy that's here for us. I thank you for the, for the joy that's found as our inner selves are renewed day by day, even as our outer selves waste away. God, I pray, I pray, Lord, that the Christians in this church, in this city, across this province and nation, in our world, God, that we will be Christians, we will be sons and daughters of God who lay aside every weight, every sin, everything that could entangle us, God, and that we would run with endurance the race you set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, I pray. I just pray that over us. We need your spirit to do it, God. We are completely unable, far too weak. 
And Lord, I also want to pray for, for those here, our friends, God, those who don't yet know you. I pray they would find the fullness of all they're searching for in you, even today. We love you, Lord. We need you desperately. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.